This week, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down and having a conversation with speaker, author and self-proclaimed troublemaker, Josh Richards. He shares his journey and mindset to how he became one of the 100 astronaut candidates shortlisted from 200,000 for the Mars One project that proposes to land the first humans on Mars in a one-way journey. Heavy stuff. Josh talks about how his childhood and his time in the army has shaped him for where he is now. And he really talks about the decision-making process behind applying to Mars One, the recruitment process, and just how the mission would shift human consciousness as a whole. If you think about this, what, what we're talking about here is the most extreme detachment from family, friends, and planet and he goes deep on how he's reconciled this decision and how that has changed his focus in his everyday life, his relationships and his general state of being and how that's taken it to new levels. Josh's focus and outlook are really impressive and infectious. His perspective beyond, beyond himself is, is truly admirable and impressive. You don't have to sign up for a one-way mission to Mars to get the many, many lessons from this conversation that you can apply to your everyday life and to use Josh's word, amplify the colour in it. So sit back and enjoy Josh Richards. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. If you had the opportunity to go and explore another world or planet, would you take that opportunity? Would you be brave enough? Well, that's what we're going to dig into today with my guest, Josh Richards. Originally born in Melbourne, Josh lived in and out of WA for many years as an army brat before settling here to finish school and study at Curtin Uni. Josh went on to join the Australian and then the British Army for six years. Since then, he's been a science advisor, speaker, teacher, comedian, author, among many, many things. However, life took an unexpected turn when he found his true calling in September 2012 when he discovered the Mars One project. The project is run by a private Dutch organization that proposes to land the first humans on Mars and leave them there to establish a permanent human colony in the coming decades. Josh is currently one of 100 astronaut candidates shortlisted from an initial 200,000 for a one-way mission to Mars in 2031. In addition to this, Josh is an in-demand professional speaker, an ambassador for science, technology, engineering, arts and maths education, and is also author of, funnily enough, Becoming Martian, a humorous look on how colonising Mars will change our species, mind, body and soul. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Super. So you lived in and out of WA to start with? Very much so. Yeah, I think uh, my, my folks have joked about it. I think I had my first flight on a, on a C-130 Hercules at about three months of age. Like we were backwards and forwards between here and Victoria. So right. I was born in Victoria. My little sister, who's three years younger, was born here in WA. So we bounced backwards and forwards all through childhood. And that, that's through following your dad, who was in the Army? Yeah, dad was with the Army, mum was with the Air Force as well, but oh, right. primarily we were posting, we were getting postings over here, so we were bouncing backwards and forwards between the two. So can you tell me a bit more about your relationship with Perth? Because I, I gather that has a bit of a bearing on things we might talk yeah, about. Yeah, it's, it's complex, if, if I'm honest. Yeah. <laughs> love hate. Yeah, li- yeah, very much so. Uh, I, it's not to say that I love Victoria or anything like that. I just um, I don't have that strong sense of home that a lot of other people talk about. Um, I come back to Perth because I've got stuff to do in Perth. And if I don't have stuff to do in Perth, 
I'm asking myself why I'm in Perth. <laughs> um, right. I don't really have, and I do that with everywhere I go. Um, right. I don't really have a strong sense of this is the place that I always go back to. I come back to Perth because this is where my folks have settled now. But um, I've joked for years now, people sort of say, where do you live? And it's like out of this backpack that I'm carrying with me right now. Right. <laughs> so it's more out of habit and routine. A little bit, yeah. It's um, it's just not being overly attached to any one particular place. Um, I, I default back to Perth. Uh, I've got a lot of friends. I've got family here, all of that. But um, I'm always on the move somewhere. Right. What were your memories of being here in Perth during childhood and how that shaped you? Uh, shaped you? So my first real memories of being here would have been year three. Uh, we, we came over at the end of 92, um, and so I did year three here. There was one year of primary school, and then we moved off to the Middle East for two years. So right. I, I've kind of got memories of that year. Um, going to primary school, West Leeming Primary School down uh, south of the river, but... Uh, yeah, other than that, cubby houses, uh, mm. that's about it. <laughs> cubby houses, outdoors, beach. Pretty much, yep. There you go. So after going to uni, you um, went and joined the army? It kind of crossed over at the same right. time. So I, I was a reservist initially. Uh, yep. So I was finishing my degree and, and doing um, mm. doing reserve work at Karakata. Uh, I did work over east as well so i went over to um townsville for a little while um over to um to sydney as well like yeah i bounced around a little bit um but most of the my time with the army was actually yeah 13 field squadron here at, at karakata as a reservist was that was that following your dad or yeah very much so yeah so dad was a combat engineer as well he primarily did um plant engineering so construction work building bridges building roads airfields all that sort of stuff mm. i was more the tactical side of things of running around and blowing things up so right. um what yeah. was it that drew you to joining um my first real memories back over in victoria uh was growing up at at Pakapunyal, uh, the the army base there, um, it, well, the C- Seymour, the city little town just outside of it, and um, Dad's main job was basically getting rid of unexploded bombs. Mm. Uh, was going around and getting rid of all the stuff that hadn't gone off on the live fire range, um, and I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Uh, <laughs> um, Blowing shit up. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> uh, so they kind of they actively encouraged me to to. It, to chase science i showed a real talent for science as a kid but i also was a runabout wanting to run around blow things up um you know manufacturing military grade explosives in high school and things like that in dad's shed like all that sort of stuff um yeah really the last couple of years of high school or all through high school lived on quite a country block uh mm. down in bilia and so we had plenty of room to drive old bomb cars around and burn things down and blow things up and do all that sort of, yeah, cause mischief, basically. <laughs> yeah, so you went and put it to good use. A little bit, yeah. Um, I would love to have... I'd initially thought that I wanted to go and join the Air Force. Um, I was looking at becoming a pilot, all that sort of thing. Um, my vision's not perfect. Uh, I'm a little bit, tiny bit short-sighted. Um, and I also looked at the, basically, the return of investment for um, your return of service as an Air Force officer, uh, if I was to go in and do my degree and then become a fighter pilot, you're looking at 15 to 20 years of return of service. So I'd be locked in to do that for 
yeah, a really long time. Yes. Um, so if if I think back about it now, if I joined at eighteen, I would maybe be finishing my return of service now instead right. of all the other stuff that I've done instead. <laughs> what were? Because you also worked. You also went and joined the British military as well. Yeah. So it it jumped around a little bit. I I did. Um, Time with the army here, uh, I decided to get out of the service um, and worked in the mining industry up north for a year as a blaster, obviously applying the, yep. the skills. Uh, hated it, um, absolutely hated everything about it, but I felt like it was me practically applying a skill set that I had. Um, I'd obviously I'd done my degree in amongst there as well, and the last year of my degree was um, working on a project, working at where Fly Rock would go during blasting to try and make blasting safer. And so I was trying to apply that in the mining industry. Um, and like I said, hated it. Could not, just despised every element of it. Um, and really the thing that got me through the last couple of months of it was wanting to get involved with scuba diving again. I'd learned mm. to dive when I was 12, wanted to get back into that, uh, and I figured I could apply my passion for diving and explosives into one thing and basically become a clearance diver with the Navy. Uh, I got messed around in terms of administration with that. Um, it was poor timing on my part in that they'd just closed the diving school and it was going to be closed for the next two years, right around the time I tried to join up. Um, and so I didn't know what to do with myself and I figured, well, yeah, um, Australia, Australia's Defence Force doesn't really seem to want me. Um, maybe I'll go and join the Brits. Um, my grandfather had been one of the original World War Two Royal Marine Commandos, um, and uh, I figured I'd go and do that. And they, it was at the time it was open to any Commonwealth citizen, so I went over and joined the Commandos. <laughs> so, what were some of the key things that you learnt during that period of time um, that have shaped you? It's really about versatility. So, a lot of folks in civilian life sort of look at what I've done and go, "How could you do that? How could you jump around and do all this sort of stuff?" And civilian life is very familiar. It's very um, you wake up at a certain time, you go and have breakfast, you go to work, you have lunch, you come back home. Like you might have a bit of variety or a few hobbies and things like that, but to have things change so quickly on a daily basis, um, it spooks a lot of people who yes. it's unfamiliar. Um, and I think the biggest thing that I learned out of it is that it, people adapt. Um, people sort of go, how could you do that? And I'm like, trust me, you could do that. If you yes. were in that situation, you would be able to adapt to it. Mm. Um, the commandos in the UK in particular, I learned more about what a human body is capable of uh, than any other point in my life. Um, your ability to keep going when you've had... I think we worked it out. I'd had about five and a half or six hours sleep in my third week. Like in seven days, we had about five or six hours sleep and you just keep going. Like you just get used to it. And when you have to do that, that's what you do. Um, and yeah, I think people are far more capable than they ex mm. than they sort of realise. It's interesting because, um, yeah, often we get stuck in our little habits and routines and there's the comfort and that you know, yeah, it keeps us safe and what have you. But it also becomes an, an ever-constricting eco uh, echo chamber yeah. around us. You you don't realise how easy it is to leave your comfort zone. <clears throat> um, you just keep. You've got the same group of friends. You get together with each other. You have my mum is involved with a monthly book club. Uh, my dad is involved with like a motorsports club, and they do the same stuff. And you know they have the meet, and it's familiar, and that's awesome. Humans love familiarity. Um, we are. Uh, 
scared of the unknown, of the unusual. And I think, yeah, me jumping around the way that I did and doing the things that I've done has made me realise that I don't actually have that much to be scared of. Um, and if something goes wrong, then you will recover from it as well. So, yeah. So it must have um, brought about a great sense of not just um, self-resilience, but self-confidence as well in the fact that chuck me in and I'll be able to sort it Yeah, out. definitely self-resilience. I'm not about the confidence. Oh, okay. <laughs> confidence. Or self-efficacy. Yeah, I, I know... I think for me, the biggest fear I have uh, when it comes to any of this sort of stuff, I can be very resilient and I know I can get through it. I also get numb. Uh, If things are too familiar, if it's the same over and over again, I feel like I start losing my my edge, my personality. It just becomes, you're just going through the motions. And I've always looked, especially at jobs, I've always looked at how can I replace myself in this job? How can I do something unique and different? and have the the normal routine stuff handled by a machine or software or something like that. So, um, yeah, I don't... I sort of push push against routine a little bit mm. <laughs> and try and do stuff yeah, that's different. Yeah, it gives you greater sense. It opens up your creativity. And yeah, that, absolutely. That's where your, you know, your edge, your vitality, your buzz lives in, not in waking up every day at the yeah. same thing, <laughs> the gym and doing the same thing. It swings backwards and forwards, though. So I, I've often talked about um, cutting and sharpening. So mm. there are periods of time where I'm cutting, I'm pushing forward and making new ground and working hard, and eventually the, the scythe that you're cutting with gets dull and you have yes. to stop, recheck, like sharpen that. back up and go again. And I feel like the last couple of months I've been sharpening. It's been quite routine and it's like, no, nah, I've just got to keep doing this, keep... Yeah. Keep sort of practicing the basics. Grind it out. And as I mentioned before we started the podcast, um, I'm heading off to Europe in a few weeks and that will be a period of complete chaos, running around chaos, doing all sorts of different things and I'll be cutting. That'll be me making big changes, making big realisations about my life but I couldn't do that if it was just routine. It has to be that agile yeah. movement. And then that burns me out. So I've got to come back and resharpen. So. Yeah. So, so there's a nice bit of sort of pendulum and balance. To Very that. much so, yeah. I, I like it swinging backwards and forwards. I mm. felt a bit of a, a cycle seems to have developed, um, an annual cycle has developed through, with me where January, about December through to February is often quite, it's, it's sharpening, it's quite routine and almost boring. It hits February and things start to happen. I have another dip in kind of May, May, June, and then, yeah, July, August is often chaos. Go so, yeah. There you go. So after being in the forces um, up until September 2012, which we'll get to shortly, what sort of things did you do? I was lost. And, and, yeah. <laughs> so how, why did you leave the forces? Um I realised I wasn't doing what I wanted to do. Um, I was very good at it. Um, and I can say that with a bit of pride. Um, mm. I was good at what I was doing. Um, I would love to have taken it further. I also had a deep recognition when I was, especially with the commandos, that what I thought my job was wasn't the reality of it. Um, there was a great deal of of bloodthirst in the commandos in particular of we want to go out and shoot people we yeah. this is what we're here to do and 
I had always envisioned, especially with the, with the engineers, my job with the engineers, I specialised in booby traps and mine warfare. And so, like, you're for us, you're getting rid of these awful things. You're making the world a safer place. Yes. Um, yes, you carry a gun in the process, but you are, you know, ostensibly making this world a safer place. Um, I never got that sense with the commandos in particular. Mm. Um, it was, we're going to go out, we're going to do this, and we're going to basically just barge around and they they teach you to be um gentle to be you know to integrate with community and lots of stuff but at the same time there's this significant element in the middle of it of your job is to shoot people your job is to close with and kill the enemy like that's Mm. in the job description um and i got sick i got bitten by a tick i got lyme's disease um i spent 10 weeks in rehab and it it broke me out of the cycle. It broke me out of this mm. push to get better, to, to do, do all the stuff, to train, to be one of the one of the tough ones that are there. Um, it broke me out of that cycle. I had a time to actually reassess and think about what I'd signed mm. up for. I got back into training um, and was dead set, determined, nah, this is what I'm going to do. And um, I walked into a conversation. Uh, I twisted my ankle. I'd gone and fallen off a rope, twisted my ankle, uh, gone to the hospital to get an ice pack and lots of stuff and come back into a lecture that we were starting uh, to hear a 17-year-old kid talking about shooting unarmed prisoners. Um, And I just stopped instantly and didn't know what to do with myself. I looked at the the corporal that was training us that this kid was saying it to, um, and he was in shock as well, but I just didn't know how to process it. and basically realised in that instant that I didn't, I didn't belong there. I wasn't supposed to be yeah, there. Yeah, my time had done. Um, the times that had scared me the most previously had been not when I thought I was going to die. It was when friends of mine were going to die, mm. um, and I kind of brought the two realisations together that I couldn't ever put someone else in the position where they would have to try and save their friend's life like I had. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the idea of... I, I basically realised I couldn't shoot people. That's what it boiled down yeah. to. <laughs> some people find that's, that's an easy realisation to come to. It took yeah. me quite some time, um, given my background and my history, um, and the kind of the family heritage that I'd grown up into. Yeah. It took me a long time to actually go, no, this is a thing that I can't do. It, it, it's personally very interesting to listen to that because I went to an English board, boys' boarding school and... You know, I was in the first 15, I played rugby. On Fridays, we had uh, CCF Army Cadets. And I loved the adventure and I loved the high performance and I loved the camaraderie and I loved the train and get better and stuff. And I loved it, loved it, loved it. And I, and at the time, I was being groomed to go and join yep. the Marines. But then when it came to, and I went to the careers fair and all of that and, and I, I had all the papers and I could have filled it out. And there was just a little voice in the back of my head that says, you do realise the business end of your job will be to shoot someone. Yep. <laughs> and then, and then it, and it was kind of like, and at that point it was kind of, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I want everything else, but I don't want that. Extraordinary experience. Like I said, I learnt more about me in that year than any other point in my life um, about what I'm physically capable of, what I can put up with, all that sort of stuff. 
um, the biggest realization was at the end there where I went, that's something I can't do. I can do yeah. all this other stuff, jump out of planes, jump mm. out of helicopters, like all of that jazz, but I can't do that. And that, mm. that's, the, that's the job description. That's what you're there to do. So, yeah, couldn't mm. stay. So you leave? Not a clue what to do. <laughs> and then briefly, what happens between then and... So I knew I wanted to stay in the UK. Um, that conflicted relationship with Perth, again, I didn't want to come back. Um, I didn't want to come back to Australia at all. Uh, I quite liked being in the UK. I felt, um, even though I wasn't going to be part of the Marines or the military anymore, um, I felt felt more at home there at least at the time. Um, and so I wanted to stay. Uh, I basically came back here, sorted out a visa and bolted back again, not knowing what to do. Uh, I looked at becoming a Kentucky tour guide. I did, the, I did an interview. Um, they offered me the job. I realised it's not what I wanted to do either. Um, I was at a total loss. Uh, and eventually what happened was I, yeah, I bottomed out. Um, I spent about four months pretty much homeless in London, which was a barrel of laughs. Um, and I applied for hundreds and hundreds of jobs. And um, eventually I got this random kind of offer that didn't really add up, didn't make a lot of sense. And I looked at it and sort of went, what is this? Um, I'd applied for a job just as, a, as someone working in an office um, for this, this company called Science Limited. And I sort of went, oh, well, okay, work data entry or whatever it was. Um, they didn't offer me that job. They asked me if I was interested in becoming a studio technician. And I'm like, I don't know what a studio technician is. They offered me a trial day, and I had to go way out into Gloucestershire to go and do this trial day. I was like, what is this job? Looked into Science Limited and suddenly started seeing the name Damien Hurst pop up all over the place. Um, and I was like, who's this Damien Hurst character? Richest living artist in history, like lives out in Gloucestershire, makes weird art involving dead animals, like all yeah. sorts of stuff. Uh, Sharks and formaldehyde. Yeah, yeah, all of that. Um, they basically, again, didn't tell me anything about the job other than um, come out, do this trial day. They showed me a whole bunch of steel and sort of went, this is an artwork, um, tell us how it fits together. We've lost the instructions, we need you to work out how to... And that was my trial day. Um, eventually kind of came to a solution and worked out what it was. And so I wound up being both a studio technician and the science advisor for Damien Hurst for the 12 months that I was there. Wow. Um, it was leading up to their 2012 uh, retrospective at the Tate. So there was all this artwork that no one had done or knew how to do for the last 20 years uh, that they basically needed someone to figure out. And the main job that I did for them was working out how to breed butterflies. Um, they had a live <laughs> butterfly exhibit in the Tate, Tate Modern mm. and uh, no one really knew how to breed them, how to keep the room at the right temperature and how to keep the humidity up as well. So I did all the heating engineering to kind of work out how to do that. Um, very surreal. I was doing stand-up in amongst all of this as well, but I, like that was that was my day job, and it was a very odd experience. <laughs> but like I said, adaptability. I bottomed out. I had nothing and nowhere to go. And um, someone turned around and said, "Do you want to come and work on weird art?" And I said, "Yes." So, Why not? <laughs> so tell us how you got to September two thousand and twelve. I'd been doing stand-up. Um, I'd started doing stand-up here in Perth uh, quite a few years before um, and 
enjoyed it but didn't really feel like I fit into the comedy scene properly I felt like an outlier um, I was working for Hearst I, I left that job to go and work for their paint factory for a while but I knew that I, that's not where I was supposed to be mm. and I was really looking at getting into into stand up professionally um, I'd done my first solo show at the Edinburgh Fringe in 2011 I'd taken another show where I shared some of the stories of some of the more awful things that had happened in the military in 2012 but I did it while dressed up as a giant koala, uh, as you do, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> playing ukulele and screaming at people. Um, was a nice mask for me to share those stories. My f- show before it, the first one in 2011, had been about the apocalypse, and it actually been about uh, all the science and religion of doomsday and what would happen if the world was going to end and that sort of stuff. And I'd ended the show talking about how if something drastic was going to happen maybe humanity would finally go and explore other planets. Maybe that'd be the push for us to go and, you know, settle on Mars or go and explore further. Mm. And so I wanted to come back to that theme. Uh, So after the Edinburgh Fringe in 2012 with the koala, uh, I sat down to start writing my next comedy show. Um, It was going to be a metaphor for me actually leaving comedy. I was done with a lot of the, Mm. the, the community. Um, and didn't want to really do it anymore, didn't know what I was going to do, but wanted to write one more comedy show uh, about going one way to Mars. And uh, Mars One had made their first public announcement about three days before. Um, it's almost six years to the day yeah. that it all kind of happened. Um, Edinburgh Fringe has just finished. And uh, yeah, I sat down to start writing this comedy show and these guys popped up. And so my show was going to be almost bitter that, we as a species hadn't explored further, that we'd kind of given up. The last last three people came back from the moon in 1972 and no one had been past 700 kilometres off the Earth mm. since that time. Why had we given up? Uh, that was the, the core theme of the show, let's go, let's explore. The other element was knowing that we could get to Mars but probably couldn't get back. I'd read a paper in 2006 by Paul Davies, um, saying the first people going to Mars would probably have to go one way. And so I themed the show around, let's do it. What are we? Why are we staying here? Why are we so attached yeah. to Earth? Let's go and explore and, and discover other planets. And and so in uh, doing that... And found someone who offered me the job. <laughs> so, yeah, and I guess so in, in, in entertaining that thought process in the process of creating a show and delivering a show... I, I basically had someone call my bluff. That's what it boiled down to. Like, <laughs> I, here I am basically bitching, saying, why haven't we done this? Like, what's wrong with humanity? Blah, blah. And these folks turn along, turn up and go, we're going to do exactly what you're talking about. Mm. And I was like, well, shit, okay. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Not knowing. Not knowing, the yeah. The universe just going. The timing of it was extraordinary. So I, I shifted gears again. Um, I knew I was going to sign up and they were going to open applications in April of 2013. So I moved back to Australia knowing that the Australian media would want to talk to an Australian more than the English media would want to speak yeah. to an Australian. So I moved back here to start speaking in schools, to do all that sort of stuff, signed up. And my next comedy show, instead of bitching, saying, why haven't we done this? It became, I am doing this. We're taking a crew of four. Who are the other three people that I want to take with me? And so I themed the show around finding those other three people. And the show ran through National Science Week and applications actually closed a week after Science Week. So people could watch the show and say, yes, this is the thing I want to do and sign up. Uh, in the final week before applications closed. So 
it was wild. <laughs> so it, it is. As I listen to the story, you know, where we uh, where we were put together and and initially spoke about doing this, and I was and and, and the person who put us together, Kate said, "Oh, you know, Josh is doing this." I was like, "Whoa, so many questions, <laughs> so many questions." <laughs> like my my podcasting brain always caved in on itself, but you know, let's start off. Explain explain about Mars One. So Mars One's a international not-for-profit organisation. It's actually two organisations, um, but for all intents and purposes, international not-for-profit organisation based in the Netherlands. Their stated goal is the permanent settlement or permanent human presence on Mars. Mm. Um, they talk about landing people there in 2032. We've also talked about it in 2027 previously. It may change. It might go out further. It might come back in. But ultimately, their goal is sending people mm. there to stay. Who's behind it? Uh, so, again, they're their own organisation. Um, it's actually started by two Dutch guys. Uh, one of them made a lot of money in wind power. Uh, the other is one of his old uh, friends from high school, I believe. Uh, and basically, Boss is the, the CEO, the guy who made the millions. Um, Arno Wielders uh, is a payload um, manager for the European Space Agency. And so... Right. Both of them have been in love with space forever. Mm. Um, both of them have always wanted to go to space and both have been incredibly frustrated that we've been promised to go to Mars in 20 years for the last 50 years. By places like NASA. By everyone. Has, oh, there's been this ongoing myth that we can get to Mars in 20 years if we just do this or if we just do that. And no one is actually doing those things mm. to make it a reality. There's amazing drawings there's amazing sort of plans and timelines but no one actually working towards it and saying this is what we're going to do mm. so a so lot of frustration God, it's, yeah. yeah um i we're dedicated to making it happen um yes. there is a there are as i said there were two hundred two thousand five hundred eighty six people who signed up initially between april and august 2013 and those folks want to leave the planet they want yep. to go and explore the rest of the solar system to go and discover more about the universe we live in so um mars one's essentially a small startup uh yes. with big plans really big plans but it's also it's also working on an idea it's working it's tapping into something that a lot of people have wanted to do for a really long time and providing an avenue that's not through a traditional space agency not through government uh, not through a, a, a arms supplier or anything like that. It's mm. going through an international not-for-profit organisation that's not representing any one single country, mm. uh, which is why an Australian can sign up for a, an organisation mm. based in the Netherlands. I guess we're seeing more of this with uh, Elon Musk and stuff like so, that. So, yeah, SpaceX is an interesting one in that they're, they're not focused on training people. Uh, their primary thing is about launch services. They want to build the rockets. They want to build the railways, own the railways to get to Mars and explore the rest of the solar system. They're less focused on training the people who do it. And so that's why NASA is talking about, you know, buying rides from SpaceX to get to the space station so they don't have to buy rides off the Russians anymore. Um, we are looking at training people to go and live on another planet and there's every possibility that we would buy rides from SpaceX in order to get to Mars. The difference is they would offer us return trips that we probably wouldn't take. Um, you would hope if you're training for a one-way mission to Mars, do. you don't want to come back. <laughs> so 
as I said, so many questions. Let's start. So tell me about the application process. Uh, mine took about three days. Uh, so it opened from memory right around Anzac Day 2013. Uh, so I think it was about April 23rd, and I had my submission in by April 27th um, because it took me three days to apply. Um, took me three days to go through it. I made the decision six months earlier yes. that I was going to do it. Uh, but yeah. Ground that process in. Yeah, very much. I was ready the moment it opened. I was there to do it. Um, and yeah, essentially several thousand word essays, uh, questionnaires. Um, there's a very small part of that application available online. So there's a, a one minute video, uh, a bit of a bio and uh, a bit of a list of your interests and hobbies. That is a tiny fraction of the data that they collected behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, describe a time that you worked in a team, describe a time that you were scared. And like these are essays. These aren't just like a couple of paragraphs. Yeah. You had 5,000 words to work with. Mm. So um, it took me quite a while. On the flip side, other candidates provided very limited answers uh, and are still with the program as well. So different people, different approaches. Mm. And then was that the first round? That was the first, the initial application. So... There were 202,586 people who started that application process. There's only about 4,227 that actually finished it and actually submitted applications. And about a quarter of those, Mars One considered, had taken it seriously. People who recorded their application video in the nude or said that they were going to go to Mars, but they would only go if they could take their wife and things like this. That kind of got filtered out uh, to the 1,058 that we had. Mm. Those folks were all then sent off for a class one aviation medical. So the same thing that I I did when I was training as a pilot, I worked, worked towards my private pilot license when I was 18, exactly the same medical uh, to kind of work out if you're fit and healthy. Mm. Um, that filtered out another 350 folks down to about 705. They left us in the dark for about seven or eight months, didn't know what was going on at all. And then all of a sudden uh, we were told we're going to be doing a psych interview and 45 people had dropped out in the meantime. So 660 of us went to interview and they selected 100 uh, based on the answers they provided uh, as the, the shortlisted candidates we've got today. So, hmm. Have you met many of the 100? I've met about a third. Uh, yeah. So I I lost track of it, but there was a whole bundle of us that got together in Los Angeles uh, late 2016. Mm. And so I think I met about 20 of them at once then. Yeah. Uh, I've met a couple of the other Australian candidates. So we've got seven here in Australia. Mm. Uh, and so I've met Diane McGrath and Nat Lawler. Um, Diane and I actually work together. We've just recorded our own podcast together, mm. interviewing other candidates. Uh, I've met up with Nat a few times in, in Queensland, in, in Brisbane. Uh, but unfortunately have never met any of the other candidates here in Australia. So, um, yeah, lots of really interesting people all around the world, different backgrounds, all sorts of different things. So so what are the skill sets that they're looking for? They're less... And who comes up with the skill set? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's, there's a few folks that are working on Mars One Selection Committee, um, Folks like uh, Dr. Norbert Kraft is the head, is the chief medical selector. Uh, he's been involved with selecting astronauts for NASA, for the Japanese Space Agency, and mm. ESA for the last twenty years. Uh, there was also a brother sister team, Ray and James Cass, uh, two Canadians, and both of them have been involved in selecting Canadian uh, astronauts in the past. Uh, Ray Cass, in particular, is one of the world leaders for small group dynamics. Mm. Um, 
yeah, they're basically, they are the three that are on the selection group at the moment. They're not interested in skill sets, which is an interesting one. And right. it's, it's almost counterintuitive to what most people assume for an astronaut. You look at, you know, the way that NASA promotes their astronauts. They talk about someone being the top of their class here and studying here and getting all this sort of stuff. Mars One's actually got folks who have no tertiary education at all. Um, at the end of the day, it, you've got enough time to train people to be a doctor, to be an engineer, and provide them experience in both mm. in the 15 years that we're talking about. What you can't train them in is how not to be a jerk, um, how yes. to get along with other people. So we're talking about locking people up in a tiny little tin can and leaving them on Mars for years at a time. You need to get along with people, and that's the first kind of focus. So really looking at resiliency, um, adaptability, creativity, like all, all these the different... Stuff we were just talking exactly. About. Yeah. So it's all the things that you need you need to have the personality that gets along with other people, that mm. can problem solve, that can deal with things going horribly wrong and not get in a fluster about it, not be fixed in a particular way of approaching a problem, be adaptable and change and work with the people you've got. Uh, rather than I was the top of my class in such and such aerospace oh, engineering, no. rah, rah, rah. It's like none of that matters if you can't work with other people. Mm. So they want to select the right personalities first and then train them rather than doing the opposite, which is what space agencies have traditionally done, which mm. is take the best of the best of the best and then try and get them to play together, which we've seen multiple in incidents yeah in yeah. sports but we've also seen it in space uh, yeah. we've seen multiple incidents where personality conflicts uh, have ended missions uh, have right. caused massive issues because you put all these A-type personalities together in a tin can and they can't play nice mm. so so what does being part of the 100 mean now most of what I do at the moment is talk to people about it. To right, like this. <laughs> um, I've, I've joked about it. Oh, it's not really a joke, but I've talked about it a few times over the last few months. If I could stop talking about it tomorrow and go and practice living in a, a mock Mars habitat, I'd do it. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, this is the best way to contribute to a mission to, to go and permanently send people to mm. Mars is basically raise awareness about it, talk about it, um, go into businesses and sort of try and apply some of the lessons that we've got from this to what they're trying to do, uh, to do keynote speaking and all that sort of weird and wonderful stuff. Um, but do I, they actively support you to do that? They uh, or are you just they're a bit ambivalent to be honest you, with you. Yeah. Just, like you're selected, so that's it. They're, Stand by. Yeah, so they're very much focused on uh, raising money up for the next stage, and that mm. has been we've had some really positive progress on that in the last couple of months. The next stage um, being basically cutting the group from 100 down to 12 to 24, and those folks start full time training. They are being locked up in mock habitats. Right, so they're that's... being trained and and basically employed full time to prepare for this. If we could do that next week I would be all up for that I'd drop all the speaking all the media stuff everything that I do uh, to do that because ultimately that's what I'm here to do mm. um, but the best way to support what they're trying to achieve right now is to talk to people about it is to write books and do speeches and all that sort of stuff so very much yeah mm. so when you finish the application form got through the medical and got down to the hundred. Was there like a reality kick in at that point? Like this, this, this is on. 
I, I'd come to terms with it six months before. Right. Um, there was a very clear moment sitting in a little coffee shop in Brighton, um, again, just after the Edinburgh Fringe, and I'd typed one way to Mars into Google, and Mars One's popped up, yeah. and I just about dropped the coffee cup. Um, mm. And I often get asked, like, how long did it take for you to decide? And it was like five seconds. Right. Like, I was looking at it, and I'm like, mm. well, I have to sign up for this. I have to do this. Um, I think the biggest source of tension um, and the biggest realization of this is this is happening or I'm in a, with a really serious opportunity here uh, was being selected into the 100 so mm. going getting through that psych interview um, <clears throat> which for all the stress and all the practice and preparation that I did for it was over in about seven or eight minutes like it didn't take long <laughs> what the interview um, interview basically they had six questions i answered them um and i didn't take long answering them um and so i think it was less than 10 minutes uh this very quick skype call um to basically answer a few questions and it was like oh cool that's it Uh, but the questions they asked were very specific Uh, sorry can you share those yeah i mean um they've they've shared them publicly so mm. I can talk about it uh, but there was basically three engineering questions of uh, how are you going to get water um, how much water are you going to need how much oxygen are going to be stored or like it, those questions varied a little bit between different candidates but it was do you even know what you've signed up for like and do you know the details of the things that are, can, are going to keep you alive so yeah. stuff that you should know really yeah. should know the more channel- bottom level of yeah, high, like Maslow's hierarchy. So you should know you should know these things. Yeah, how much yeah. oxygen you're going to have? Yeah, cool. Yeah. All right. Um, the other three were more complex and more insightful in that they were things like describe a time you worked as part of a team, uh, and they're not necessarily listening for your example of how you worked as part of a team. Mm. They're actually listening to the language you're using. Yes. So if you're talking about well, when I did this and, uh, you know, I, I was leading the team to do this, uh, but then we ran into this problem, but then I found a solution for such and such, rah, rah, rah. you're saying I, 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 and the old thing of there's no I in team. Mm. Um, but there's a me if you look carefully. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm joking. laughs> That's true. It's true. Um, they're listening for we. Yes. If you were talking about, like, we work together in this and then we found this problem, but we ran into this and we solved this this way, yeah. like... A, they listen to language because that's actually reflecting your yes. mindset of how you approach a team. So that filtered out quite a few folks uh, who were pretending to be team players but actually weren't. Uh, other elements, um, I can't even think of the whatever the second question was. The last question they asked us, the last psych one, was if you'd been on Mars for three years and you had the opportunity to come back, would you take it? And anyone who said yes isn't what they're looking for. They want people to go there and settle permanently on Mars. If you turn around and said no, but couldn't really explain why, you're not really with the program anymore either. Um, Mm. You're just giving the answer that you think is the answer they want. So Mm. I kind of answered in the middle. Um, I turned around and said after all the training, all the time, effort, money, everything that had gone into actually getting me onto the surface of Mars and having spent several years there, I would hope that I would want to stay there, that I would it would have settled, that that would be what I want for my life. That's a brutally honest answer, isn't it? But I also reflected, I added on to it, that like, I also knew that I'd signed up 
to do that. To do that. I'd also signed up to other things in the past that turned out to be something else. And I'd specifically use the example of the commandos. Yes. Where I had signed up for something thinking it was one thing. And when I actually got there and experienced the reality, I realized I didn't want it at all. So mm. going one way to Mars is a hell of a commitment, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> And you won't truly know the answer to that question until you're standing on the surface looking at the return rocket that might bring you back to Earth if you wanted it and ask yourself, do you want to get on board? Because so. there is no precedent. There is no... You don't know. And I Nobody would, does. I, would, I wouldn't... Well, this is the thing. I wouldn't trust anyone who had a solid answer on that. Mm. Anyone who turned around and said, absolutely not. No, no way. I know myself 100%. It's like, I, I've been tested. And I, I know, I've been tested enough to know that I would question myself in that situation. Yes. How did mum and dad take it when you Not well. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not true. They, their reaction to it has evolved considerably over the last six years. So mm. I could have told them far better than I did. Uh, <laughs> How did you? <laughs> uh, I'm off. Quite I basically a little a little bit yeah I, I got excited uh, what it boiled down to was I discovered Mars One on a Thursday uh, made the decision that I was going to sign up for it straight away uh, I wrote a post for my website on the Friday that was scheduled to go out on the Monday knowing that I'd probably chat to Mum I would always I would always call Mum once a week on a Sunday yeah and I don't remember what happened or why it didn't happen but I never made the phone call on the Sunday Ooh. so the first thing that Mum read the first thing Mum saw and heard about any of it was waking up back here in Australia on the Tuesday morning reading my my latest post on my website saying that I'd discovered this organisation and that I was going to sign up for a one-way mission to Mars and so I got a phone call uh, initially from mum and then it was handed over to dad fairly quickly um, basically sort of saying like you really need to warn us before you do things <laughs> like this mum's <laughs> um, arguably now one of my biggest supporters yes. uh, she loves seeing me get out get engaged I as I said multiple times was very lost like didn't know where I belonged yeah. in the world and she would love for me to find something that is more earth focused, <laughs> but she also knows that this gets me out of bed in the morning. This is yeah. what I. This lights me up. She's in, the best version of yeah, herself. absolutely. Um, I have Didn't discovered you or sisters? little sister. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. So what does she make of it? Uh, she thinks I'm an idiot, um, that's but nice. that's that's actually got nothing to do with Mars One at all. Right. So. <laughs> um, she does. Yeah, we're very different. We're radically different. Yeah. Um, she's she's a, a corporate lawyer. Um, she does very well for herself. Like she's very um, down the line. Has a lot of laughs as well, but is definitely not as much of a loose unit as her older brother. So, <laughs> mm. um, look, listening to your story so far, I, I can kind of see where the answer to my next question is going to, going to come from, but. How do you reconcile the fact that you have, in effect, and I'm sitting here listening to you, you're like, you're, you're not mucking about. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I've now sat across people long enough to be able to see when I'm not entirely listening to the real story. Um, how do you, is it easy to reconcile the fact that, that what you are proposing means that you will say goodbye to the planet, say goodbye to your friends, Say goodbye to your family and say goodbye to everything. Like it's the ultimate detachment. Yep. 
right. like Buddhism talks about you know reducing detachments and da 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 da. This is like the ultimate test. So I would never call myself a Buddhist, but I if I looked at different uh, doctrines around the world. Um, I would definitely take on board a lot of what they do. Um, mm. I've always had a fairly keen interest in Zen in particular, um, which is total non-attachment without any of the dogma. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would be all up for it. At the end of the day, you have only got today. You've only got this mm. moment to live in. Uh, I don't need anything. Uh, I talked about it before not being particularly not having a strong sense of home yeah has then been amplified by this uh i have then asked questions like do i need stuff not really so everything i own fits in a backpack i've got my old army patrol pack which is not big <laughs> mm. and everything i need to to do everything that i do fits in that backpack um there's a few things hanging on the wall in my old bedroom um but i really don't need anything else um, so you have to ask yourself, like, what do you actually need? What do you actually want to do with your, with your time on earth? Um, I'm talking about or potentially... time existence. Well, that's the other thing, yeah. I'm, I'm talking about, like, leaving, leaving the earth in 14, 15 years' time. Uh, I could also walk out the front here and get hit by a car. True. Uh, like, any one of us could drop dead from whatever. Um, Has there ever been a point... Of recent where it's been difficult to reconcile it? Has it been challenging? I, I think the biggest issues I've had, not about leaving, it's a almost a, a bit of an existential despair that we as a species might not be ready to do it, uh, that we may not mm. be in a position to sort of turn around and actually support something that will send people to another planet because we're too focused on ourselves, because of what we're, what we're doing here. Yeah. Um, that's been the biggest concern. That's been the the idea that I would have the opportunity, me, individual Josh, would have the opportunity to go and live on another planet. is an incredible opportunity. It's never been a fear factor. It's been I get to be a representative for the entire species yes. and be one of those people who helps make us a multi-planetary one. So, yeah. On a personal level, it's way bigger than me. Like, it's way bigger than relationships, family, country. I get mm. people sort of go, oh, what's it like being one of the seven Australians? I'm like, I'm one of the hundred people worldwide. Yeah, not so I'm not like, I, a lot of folks don't like hearing it, especially here in Australia. Um, but I don't feel particularly Australian. Um, I, I feel like I'm an earthling. I feel like a yeah. human being rather than being particularly attached to one random patch of dirt on this planet. Um, I think nationalism is probably the biggest barrier that we have to space exploration. So, yeah, I don't don't feel attached to nationality either. <laughs> See, the other thing that came up for me while I was thinking about um, approaching this podcast was, you know, on one level, there's this fantastic man exploration, being able to go and live on another planet, etc., etc. But then at the other end of the scale, I've got this, well, we're fucking up the one we're on yep. shouldn't we be shouldn't we be putting yep. all that energy focus into sorting out how we live harmoniously on this one before and, we start and yet we taking we, our shit somewhere else we both do and don't yeah. so I think uh, you see the yeah for me it's it's all about perspective um, mm. I I see us sort of going oh we're, we're fucking up the planet rah 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 
Um, but at the same time, you know, infant mortality is lower at this point than it has been globally any any other point in history. Mm. Um, things like polio uh, and all sorts of different things are just we just don't deal with them anymore. And yet, because we work on a human lifetime, we mm. only think about our very small <coughs> sort of like oh, we're we're ruining we're pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And yes, we need to deal with that. Um, that needs to be a thing that gets fixed. But life is actually so much better than what it was 40, 50 really years ago. I like your perspective. So we, we focus on that. And the reason why I think something like going to Mars is so vital, you're talking about uh, you know what we're doing in the next 10, 15 years. I'm thinking along the lines of a generation of kids growing up being able to see people living on another planet on the six o'clock news and that be normal, like that yeah. be normalized, that people go and live on other planets um, mm. as opposed to like a seven-year-old country kid in, in you know, country Victoria yeah. <laughs> growing up and being told only Americans go to space. Yes. Uh, that idea that where you come from should have any impact on your ability to explore space is something that I, I hope dies um, that's what I'm most excited about with all of yeah. this is that we have kids everywhere growing up wanting to explore mm. um, rather than being super focused on, you know, Australia's the greatest or America's the greatest, the UK or whatever, um, actually sort of go, hey, who cares where you come from? Let's go and explore. Let's discover more about the universe we live in. So, Excellent. Um, so how do you reconcile everyday life now? <laughs> <laughs> It's difficult. <laughs> um, right, because then, then my head again, thinking, uh, so, so much fun preparing for this. <laughs> Not that I don't with others. But then it's kind of like, oh, okay, so y y you're on the precipice of being able to do something that's up there with the likes of um, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, da 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 da, -da. Um, Yet, you know, like the great book, after the ecstasy comes the laundry. Yep. Um, you, know, you still have to earn, make a living, this, that, and the other. How do you view having to do that? How do you reconcile being with friends? What about girlfriends? <laughs> like yeah, that. so that's been probably the biggest thing that's changed over the last five or six years. Mm. Um, well, on, one, level, one level, it must be a great chat up line. But then You'd be another... <laughs> surprised how bad it is. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I live and breathe this every day. Um, and that's my, my daily approach to it is this is what I do. Um, and no matter what happens, if I had the opportunity to get on a ship tomorrow and go to Mars, I would do that. Mm. Um, and that's a hell of a thing to go into a relationship with. Uh, yes. that's a, yeah, again, we have an attitude, uh, we have a, a focus sort of like, this is what's going on and this is my life. And people don't come to terms with their own death. Uh, they don't mm. sort of recognise that, hey, one day we're all going to die. Um, I'm just making a decision to leave this familiar existence at a particular set date if I get the opportunity. Um, but that scares the hell out of people and it actually makes people confront their own death. Mm. Um, so in terms of relationships, like a lot of... You have the, you know, the, the traditional Disney... A fairy tale or whatever of meet someone, fall in love, get married, have a couple of kids, like have a yes. house in the suburbs, all of that. That is never going to happen for me. Um, yeah. And I love that I know that now. Yeah, uh, it must be quite liberating. It is. It's challenging. It's challenging to turn around. You meet someone who's amazing and that's what they want. 
Um, and it's very difficult to reconcile that. Um, the reality is I, by getting involved with this, have had to sort of go, well, I travel a lot. Um, being in one place, being attached to one person doesn't seem to be the situation for me. So mm. I have had girlfriends in different places at the same time uh, for quite a few years now. That's been the kind of approach that I've had. Um, as long as everyone knows and everyone's honest, mm. um, then you have a choice as to whether or not that's okay for you or not. And again, it's very challenging to say that to someone who may not be familiar with it or okay with it. Um, and again, you can't be attached to the result. You mention that to someone and they freak out and you go, okay, well, this is who I am. This is what I now do. Now this isn't going to work. Yeah, and that's okay. You don't take anything personally. You, yep, okay, cool. That's fine. Um, I, I saw someone late 2015, absolutely wonderful woman who I, I still care about a lot and um, will get a chance to catch up with when I go to the UK. She's always wanted to be a mum. She's, that's what she's always wanted. Uh, and me signing up for this made me realise I never, ever want to be a dad. Um, yeah. I, had, I came to that recognition. And so as much as I care about her, as wonderful as she is, I couldn't stay in a relationship where I would be, in a way, <clears throat> blocking her <clears throat> from meeting someone she could actually have kids with. So as much as I care about her and as much as I like catching up with her when I can, um, that was never going to be a relationship that could be sustainable. So... <clears throat> You, again, not be overly attached. I'm involved with something that's way bigger than me, way bigger than family or relationships or any of that. And so you can enjoy the the connection. You can enjoy connecting with people, friends, family, whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to be okay with stepping away mm. from it and letting go, with, letting go of all of it because you're doing something that's bigger than that. I suppose it... Because it, I'm, I'm being... As I listen to you, I'm being very impressed with the with the focus and the focus that's bigger than yourself. And so therefore I'm getting the impression that when you are with friends and family and people that you care about, um, you can be super present with them, not in without that. Um, oh, well, yeah, I'll just hang out with them for 10 minutes and then go somewhere no. else because yeah, I'll see them again next week and the week after and just taking it for granted. You I've, living in the past or present or the future. I've talked about it turning the colours up on life um, yeah. quite a bit. And that's really what it does. If I want to come and chat to you on the podcast, it's because I want to. If yeah. I want to catch up at a comedy <clears throat> night with you um, and chat to you, it's because I, I want to. Uh, if there's someone at the comedy night who I never really got along with in the first place, um, I can be quite rude. Mm. Um, because Is it rude or Claire? It... Uh, <laughs> It depends on how you. It depends on who's on the receiving end of it. I'm, thinking, I'm, I'm, taking, I'm, I'm guessing the fact that it's like, hey, Josh, we should hang out. And no, like, no, no. <laughs> I, I try not to be a jerk about it. Yeah, um, but I don't. Um, I had friends at university that were like that, and I loved it. It makes. I, I don't want to drink beers with you. Yeah. Oh, okay. Not because just we don't get along. Yeah. Um, take it. I. I try not to... I've not taken it personally. There have been different people over the years, plenty of people through the years, who I have upset one way or another and never really known why. Um, but if I can turn around to someone and go, hey, I don't really want to hang out um, and be open and honest with them, then at least they know 
at mm. least I'm being honest about it rather than uh, just not answering messages or something like that. Yeah, doing the... Yeah, just disappearing just on someone. Just ghosting yeah. someone. No, nah, um, I'd rather be clear. I'd rather... Mm. And if I have upset someone, I'd rather they tell me that and I can either correct them or go, yeah, actually, this is an issue and We're clarity. We're to have to, to learn to live with it. Yeah. Um, it, it sounds... Sounds very redundant, but it's communication. It's being clear and open and honest with people and going, mm. this is what I'm okay with, this is what I'm not. And if you don't know what's going on, you should be able to ask someone without someone getting touchy or upset about it. I, I did a little um, video segment on my Facebook page recently about this, about two parts to having a real conversation. One is the bravery to just say, or I disagree with that, or no, I don't want to do this, or this, that, and the other. But then the second part is, is that often we, um, <clears throat> if you think that you've upset somebody, then what often we find ourselves doing is jumping in to make them feel better. Yeah. And so therefore, you shortcut a development or a learning point for them to develop their own strategies yep. to make themselves feel better, rather than, and, and in, in, and by doing that, you make them dependent on other people. Oh, you've upset me. Will you make me feel better now? Yeah. I, this is where I think we've gone as a society. <laughs> I don't have time for it. And it's yeah. not a case of like, oh, I don't have time for that. It's literally like, I, I've got better things to do so, with my time than worry about it too much. If there's a problem, tell me and we'll deal with it. If there's not, I'm going to assume there's not a problem. Um, I've often... Last few years in particular, I've really broken it down into a rule of thirds, especially the way that people react to Mars One generally. Mm. One third love it and think it's the most extraordinary, wonderful, bizarre thing in the world. One third really don't give a shit or sort of go, yeah, okay, righto, that's a thing, yeah, fine. And then there's one third that it actively upsets, like it really upsets Mm. people and it's got nothing to do with me. It's them being challenged by the ideas that are being presented by it Mm. and... I, they're probably strangely close to the first third. Of course, they're just, yeah, they're just conflicted with it. <clears throat> but it's not my responsibility to fix that. No. Um, if folks are interested, I will talk to them about it. If they want to get involved or whatever, I also don't have any responsibility to convince the middle third. I don't have no. to try and tell you that it's important or whatever. No. Um, people set world records for the most hula hoops or like how quickly they get undressed and all that sort of stuff. Like if I'm... If you don't care about me going one way to Mars, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's your thing. It's like, this is what I do. This is what I'm involved with. Yeah. I don't have to convince you that it's worthy or worthwhile or me being involved with it is a good thing. I'm just doing my stuff. Don't go to my web page. Don't go and listen to yeah, my stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's like... Do your own thing. I don't have to justify myself. No. no. <laughs> um, exactly. <clears throat> um, so there's another question that popped up. So you get there, Mars, right? And you set the colony up. Do you think you'll meet anybody up there? So we're sending two men and two women. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't mean men or women. Okay. Oh, aliens. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I'm. Although the other question is interesting. Yeah, we'll come back to that. <laughs> uh, I reckon we'll find life. Now, I don't think we're going to meet anyone. I don't think we're going to find Marv in the marsh with a little ray gun or anything like that. Uh, I genuinely believe that we'll find things like bacteria, microbes. Uh, That's already been done, though, hasn't it? Well, it? no. So this is an interesting one with the history of exploring Mars. 
there's never been a probe that's gone to Mars since 1972 that was capable of detecting life. Right. So while there's a lot of discussion about, you know, um, the rovers finding water-carrying rocks and, you know, rocks that might find life and maybe maybe seeing something that looks like it might be flowing water on the surface, all this sort of stuff, none of those rovers have ever been built or designed in such a way to actually detect life primarily because the folks who are building them are much more interested in the geology of Mars than actually finding life. Right. So they use life as a way of hooking people's attention because they know it engages the public, but what they're actually looking at is, is, the, is the geology on Mars, is the way that rocks form on Mars, rather than actually trying to find life. Mm. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that, but one of the big ones is that to send a rover with all the very sensitive electronics that are on board you can't decontaminate it to a suitable level where going into one of these special areas where we think there might be life, we might find bacteria or flowing water or whatever, you can't decontaminate the rover enough to be sure that you won't contaminate that special site in the process of going there. Hmm. Um, the only time that they've done something like that was Viking 1 and 2, and they basically baked them in gamma radiation, just utterly cooked them, um, they didn't have the sensitive electronics on board the way the rovers do today. Yeah. And so they were the ones that actually did the life experiments to try and detect life. And they found some ambiguous results from the yeah. soil. But no one's actually sent a life experiment to Mars since the mid-70s. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think we'll find life. And I think it'll be in those special areas, like in the canyons and the lava tubes and all of that sort of stuff. And it will be microbial um, or it will be... Yeah, something very, very small, mm. something like a tardigrade or whatever. Uh, but, yeah, I definitely don't think we're alone. Um, I don't think aliens are coming and visiting Earth. Uh, but I'm I, very self-centred as a species for us to think we're the only ones mm. uh, that are out there, given how big it is. I like the um, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where Calvin says to Hobbes, the surefire sign that there's intelligent life out there is that they haven't come. Yeah, to they're ignoring us, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So there we go. So um, through this whole journey with Mars One, for the moment you found it to where we are today, what have you learned about yourself? I, I think the biggest thing for me has always been um, I've sought meaning. Um, I've sought doing things that actually will make the universe a better place. Um, and I've tried lots of different variations of that uh, and bounced around and done a lot of different things. At, but at the end of the day, it's always come back to that. I went into the military because I wanted to get rid of landmines and make the world safer. Um, I went and worked for an artist because that was the opportunity that I had and I worked with people to try and make the systems we were using better um, to keep butterflies alive, to make the world a bit prettier. Um, comedy was about trying to make people laugh um, and trying to bring more joy into the world. This is about us shifting our perspective uh, so that we're not so focused on the boring day-to-day -day sort of whining about this country or that country or whatever and actually come together as a species. So mm. I've always sought meaning in doing something bigger than me. Yeah. Um, and that's probably been the recognition the last six years. I was doing it subconsciously in the past, but being involved with this has actually made me really question why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I got involved in the first place and why it's so important. But by doing that, what does it give Josh? Doesn't matter. 
it, it actually doesn't matter. Um, right. For I, I, a lot of folks sort of focus on like I'll get to go to Mars and all that sort of stuff. It doesn't matter if it's not me. I no. don't care if it's not me. Um, I care about humanity going and living on another planet. Um, and the best way for me to advocate for that is to put my hand up and say, I'll do it. I'll do it. And the best way I can advocate for it right now is to talk about it. But if I could be involved in doing it, in training for it, in building rockets or whatever to do that, then I would do that as well. But this is the best way for me to contribute to that much larger goal. So it's way bigger than the individual. Um, It's giving you a sense of purpose. Yeah, I get to contribute to something bigger, which is what I was drawn to with the military as well. Um, Try and make the universe a nicer place to be more interesting um, have a more interesting future than what we might have if I didn't do these things so mm. yeah um, what um, what sort of things do you do on a daily basis to <laughs> it varies a lot keep you um, yeah I, I imagine with your varied you know being here being there being there what are some of the consistent things you do that helps you to maintain your focus and, 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 and be on point? So fitness is the biggest one, probably. Yeah. Uh, fitness and writing are my two big mm. things. Um, before I came here today, I jumped on the rowing machine and I wrote in my journal. Like that. They're the things that I do. Jumped on your rowing machine and wrote in the journal. Uh, like after I'd, after I'd finished the rowing machine, yeah. I wrote in, my, wrote in the journal. Um, they're the so things you journal that every day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's... That's probably been the biggest personal breakthrough for me since I got involved with this. I started keeping a journal when I found out about Mars One. Um, Are they big entries, small entries? Is there a structure to it? uh, There's definitely a a structure that's developed over time. Mm. Um, I've actually just burnt the the six years worth. So I actually burnt all my journals from the end of 2012 through to the start of this year. Uh, Cleansing. To be honest with you, <laughs> I yeah. Why hang on to a bunch of books? Um, I'd taken, I'd gone through all of them. I'd basically taken out the important stuff that I felt was relevant to me, and I'd made a, a document out of that. Yeah, um, just the individual stuff. But for most part, it's like you're just writing every day, so ninety nine percent of it's going to be crap. It's just going to be like you pouring your brain out onto the page. And there'll be a few gems here and there. And so I picked out those gems, put them into a document. I took photos of interesting articles uh, and I share them. I share one of those a month on a, on a Patreon page that I've got. Mm. Um, but I don't need the paper. Mm. Um, I needed the process of writing to get these ideas out onto the paper so I can look at them, so I can then do something else with them. I didn't need the paper. And so having this box full of journals... Uh, mm there was no point and there was something quite cleansing about throwing them in a fire um mm. don't need this anymore so yeah uh, that's probably the biggest thing is the journaling and the in the exercise yeah it's interesting because um uh i have over the last five weeks started getting up early doing at least 20 minutes of journaling yep. going, and i have found and this is there's this recurring theme that the the greatest tool that a man has at the moment for self-exploration and manifesting is a pen yeah (laughs) (laughs) i I can't do it on a laptop no and to me there's something really important about physically engaging with a pen that then physically 
create something on a page, you know, <clears throat> the batteries don't go off. Yep. <laughs> um, you physically made something. There's something intangible about writing something on a laptop to me. Oh, it slows me down. Likewise. As in, like, the hand, handwriting, I, can, yeah. I get a chance to really think, and once you've written something on a page, it's there. It's there. As opposed to a laptop where you just go, oh, no, you know, select all, delete, whatever, and it's gone again. Mm. Once it's on the page, it's on the page, and yeah. you you stop and you think about it. I will often generate ideas while I'm writing by hand, and I will then take those ideas and write about them for an article online. Mm. But but it's ground out. You've got to you've got to slow down and stop mm. and have this almost meditative process of I'm yes. going to sit down for twenty minutes and write. Um, yeah. Even if you don't know what you're going to write, and then twenty minutes later, I find it pours Jesus out. Yeah. And so there's the exploration of opening up ideas, but then also I find well I'm going to I'm going to consider what I write about. What do I want my day to have looked like by the yeah. end of it? And yeah. But strangely enough, it happens. So I I have done it in the mornings. For me, I tend to find it will be the last thing I do at night. Mm. Um, so I'll sit in bed. I'll might, might read afterwards, but it will be a case of what happened today. Uh, what am I feeling and thinking? What what's the end result from today? Mm. Um, and what am I going to take into the next day? And I almost sleep on those ideas to mm. then kickstart the next morning. So find it um, really keeps you focused and self accountable. Yeah. Well, you go back, and this has been the, one of the interesting things for me, is going back through the old stuff. So I hang on to the last couple of journals, but going back through the really old stuff, you start to see patterns of this is something I've cared about for a long time. Yes. This has been an ongoing problem for a long time. Mm. And you recognize it rather than just being like, oh, I forgot to do this again. You look back six years and you're like, oh, wait, no, I was forgetting to do that back then. Why is this an ongoing thing? And one of the things I'm working on at the moment is my journal is almost becoming quite repetitive, saying, write your book, work on your book. I'm writing my second book at the moment. And it's just like all I'm saying to myself is you have to sit down and write and do this. You know what to write. You just have to put in the time to do it. Go do. Um, The other thing that's come up recently is I was quite a keen scuba diver as a kid. Um, I learned to dive when I was 12. Obviously, you know, looked at it as well with the military. Um, One of the things that I always wanted to get involved with was cave diving. Um, And I know, obviously, we've had the the Thailand rescue recently and lots of stuff. 12, 14 years ago, I read an article about a guy called David Shaw, an Australian cave diver who wound up drowning in Bushman's Hole in South Africa trying to recover a body. Um, And I remember reading that, and that helped kickstart my interest in cave diving even though it was about a guy dying yeah i loved the challenge the what they were describing the the, this sort of singular focus that these guys had in cave diving and i've almost come back to that reviewing my journals reviewing and writing my book Mm. saying what am i going to do before i leave the planet i want to learn to cave dive and i've always wanted to learn to cave dive i've got some ludicrous diving qualifications but i've never been in an environment or around the right people to actually learn the skills of the specifics of cave diving. And so I'm now working out how I'm going to do that. I'm planning a trip to Florida to, to go and, and dive in places like Waluca Springs and um, go and experience this and finally do something. Mm. And if I hadn't been journaling, I wouldn't have remembered that that has been an ongoing right. thing in the background. I would have just let the rest of life kind of squash it down and it would have been a subtle thing that I always would have wanted to do. Mm. And I wouldn't have recognised it if I hadn't been journaling. Mm. 
And I've got a funny feeling listening to you that that skill will come up somewhere. Yeah. (laughs) If you could go back and give Josh a piece of advice just before he joined the military, what would that piece of advice be? I wouldn't change anything. I don't know about the advice. I'm who I am through the experiences I've had. Um, And so if I was going to give advice, I, I... I don't know if I'd want to. Um, there was some really awful things that happened uh, that I got through. And I know that I could get through those things because I had to get through them. <laughs> yeah. and, and if I hadn't dealt with that, if I hadn't done what I needed to do when I did it, um, I'm very proud that I I never had to shoot anyone. Like I never was placed in that situation where I had to decide whether or not my life was worth taking another's um i'm glad that i came to that realization without ever being put in that position but if i hadn't been put in some of the other positions i'd been put in i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing today um if i turned around and gone no i'm going to pursue space when i was seven or eight or whatever um instead of going down the military path i see plenty of people now who did that, who knew their passion, knew that Mm. space was their thing when they were a kid and pursued it solely, and they don't have the breadth of skill or experience that I do. And I'm in the position I am because of the stuff that I've done rather than I always knew I wanted to go to space. I always knew, 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 knew. If I hadn't been lost for so long, I wouldn't be able to appreciate the position I'm in today. So I wouldn't give any advice. I'd let Brilliant. I'd let young Josh work it out for himself because he a, does. Give him a sneaky smile. Yeah, you know. you'll you'll be fine. Whatever it is, you'll work it out. You work it out. And and finally, um, if there was a, a little nugget of information that you could upload into the collective consciousness, a bit like you know in the film The Matrix, where he's <laughs> oh, I know kung fu. Um, what would that be? Don't be scared. Like that's really what it boils down to. Uh, there's two things: um, get up and help people, um, and help the and don't be scared to help the people around you. Um, there were too many circumstances that I saw where people's lives were on the line, and others were too scared to act to help them. Um, they were concerned about their own well-being. They were concerned about being embarrassed. They were concerned about all these different things. It doesn't matter. Um, our lives are so small and so huge at the same time that if you're scared of doing something step back and realize how how almost pointless your life is and yet at the same time how extraordinary it is that you are here in the first place so Mm. yeah i guess the one piece of if i summed all of that up it would be never be scared to help people um there's a an amazing story um, is a, a comic online comic called The Oatmeal uh, that did a did a comic a while back about Gene Roddenberry and mm-hmm. about how uh, just after World War Two he was a co-pilot for a, a Pan Am flight um, that crashed over um, the Syrian desert um, and it basically details the story of how during the crash he got up left the pilot in control of the aircraft went back and sat with a young woman uh, at the back who was by herself and in tears because they were all convinced they were all about to die. Um, and he just stayed with her and told her it was going to be okay, knowing they were probably all going to die. Um, and he got up and helped. Um, and that 
something like that, if you are in a really awful situation where you know that people are probably going to die, be kind, step up and help help the people around you to make it a little bit easier. Because mm. um, we are all going to die in the end. <laughs> and it doesn't have to suck. Um, it could just be, yeah, you try and make life a little easier for the people around you. So. Yeah. I don't know if that's one piece of advice, but yeah, <laughs> there's a lot there. So if um, anybody wants to find you, come and talk to you, listen to anything else you do, how can they I'm, catch you I'm everywhere. Life? Yeah, I'm all over the place. Um, if folks are wanting to get in touch, the easiest thing to do is go to joshrichards.space. So instead of .com, it's .space. Uh, yeah, I'm quite <laughs> proud of it. <laughs> um, I'm on Facebook as well with uh, Josh Richards Space Pirate. Um, Twitter and Instagram are all my, um, at mighty underscore ginge. Um, yeah. You'll find all of that. Um, but I'm always around. So people can email me, throw questions at me. There's always I'm always happy to answer questions because right now that's my job is to tell people about what we're trying to do um, and how we're going to do it. Josh, it's been awesome talking to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um I have found your focus and your ability to articulate um, hugely refreshing and hugely insightful. And there's so much in what we've spoken about, which you don't have to sign up for Mars One to implement. (laughs) No, no, there's so much to learn. Like there's so much to learn, and you know, to 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 just focus on being present, being here, being now. And, and yeah, I've just found it super impressive. Um, when you get to the 24, will you come back and talk to us again? Absolutely, yeah. If I get that far, that'll when be, that'll that be uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, selfishly, I really want you to get all the way. <laughs> I want to be able to say, he, he was on the podcast. <laughs> he was just in the 100 and now, you know, he's out there. Look at this. It'd be um, nice. And by that point, we'll be doing a podcast for Interplanetary. Uh, yeah, I'd like that. Again, it doesn't matter if it's me. Oh, no. It really doesn't matter. No, but I, I, I appreciate... No, I know. But I, <laughs> I appreciate that people are so supportive and so enthusiastic for me going because um, that's what you need. You need a few rare, random people yeah. to go and do weird and wonderful things and have them supported by the folks that stay behind. It's, it's actually easy to do with you because you're, oh, so <laughs> you're so passionate. It, it, it's easy to be uh, supportive of you. Um, it's great, you know. I, I get to sit and talk to so many people, and and it's, you know, I, f- I find the gold in, gold in, in, in nearly everybody. Um, every now and again, there's another level where people are so focused and they just know it, and it's brilliant to be around. Oh, thank so, you. Thank you very much. <laughs> cheers. Anyway, cheers. cheers. <laughs>